Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're here today with a movie that we have referenced quite a few times over the last, I would say, 20 episodes. It is the third installment of I Do Not Trust Allison Williams. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so we're here today with The Perfection from 2018. A Netflix film that I think was popular when it came out, but it was horrific. Yes. And so many plot twists. I mean, looking back, I never really knew what was going on. Even at the end, I was left with stuff to think about. So I think as far as a movie watching experience goes, I liked my movie watching experience here. Yeah, the movie doesn't let you miss anything, which I think is a little funny to some (laughs) degree, which we'll get to a little bit later. But it definitely is a thrilling ride. Okay, so let's get into our ladies. Of course, we have Allison Williams. She plays Charlotte Wilmore. Of course, we know Allison Williams. Just to recap, she was Rose Armitage in Get Out, and she is also Gemma and Megan. We also have Molly Grace, who plays a young Charlotte. We have some flashbacks here, which I love. Next, we have Logan Browning as Elizabeth or Lizzie Wells. She's an American actress best known for playing Samantha White on the Netflix series Dear White People. And she also appears briefly as the character Vanessa on Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide. And she plays Sasha in the 2007 Bratz movie, which I just wanted to put in there because Barbie's been on my mind. (laughs) And Bratz will rise. Yes, and Bratz will rise. And we have Myla Thompson, who plays a young Lizzie. Next, we have Elena Huffman as Paloma. She's a Canadian film and television actress, best known for the television series Painkiller Jane. And finally, we have Eileen Tian as Zhang Li. And she's a young actress, doesn't have many film credits yet, but who knows what we'll be seeing from her in the future. Getting into some pre-plot trivia, this film is directed by Richard Shepard and was written by Richard Shepard, Nicole Snyder, and Eric C. Charmello. And Allison Williams had earlier collaborated with director Richard Shepard on eight episodes of the popular TV series Girls from 2012. Yeah, I would say probably before Get Out, that's what she was most known for is Girls. I've never seen it, but I've heard middling things about it. I have also never seen it, but it's something I feel like keeps coming up. Maybe I should just watch it. Just give in. <laughs> I spend all my time watching these movies these days. <laughs> exactly. I have no time for fun. No, exactly. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, is, that is so true, though. That is so true, though, because I have people ask me, like, what are you watching? I'm like, nothing I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> for real. I have to get myself hype. I have to pump up. But actually, this movie, again, I, I think because there was so much anticipation for it, at least on my end, because of our conversations about it and knowing Allison Williams is in this and I like the movies that she's been in. I was kind of pumped for it. And I think we also have cornered a very specific genre of horror movies that take place in musical conservatories. (laughs) Yes, we have. Whether it be like the Suspiria remakes or Black Swan, like there's a lot of weird similarities that exist between them. And obviously, when you're looking at the character of a musician, maybe that's intentional. But yeah, I enjoyed some of these through lines here. So let's get into the plot. Yeah, we open with an old woman in bed, which again made me think of Suspiria straight away. The 2018. 100%. There's lots of medications, and she's being looked after by a young woman. She looks like she's in her 20s or so. Her name is Charlotte. She's staring blankly ahead at her mother, who we can assume is dying. And this is confirmed with her aunts talking shit in the next room. <laughs> Respect. <laughs> Her aunts are giving contacts saying that Charlotte sacrificed so much to take care of her mother. It's going to be nice for her to get her life back, although she has not performed in a decade. 
We're getting the sense that Charlotte obviously is a performer of some degree. And we have a flashback of a younger Charlotte descending stairs of what we can assume to be a boarding school or a music school as a younger girl who we later find out to be Lizzie ascends the stairs and they're looking at each other. And then we get a vision of that young Charlotte from the chair looking at her mother, kind of showing us that since Charlotte was a little girl, she maybe had to leave the school, leave this academy in order to care for her dying mother, who then passes away shortly afterwards. After this opening scene, we get our first subtitle. We get into part one, The Mission. We see Charlotte practicing calling two people named Anton and Paloma. She's practicing how she's going to say hi to them if they pick up the phone. She eventually leaves a message. These are people she's presumably lost touch with over the years since she's been caring for her mother. But when she finally leaves the message, she says that she would like to come join them now that she's not needed at home anymore. And then we get another note that she has arrived in Shanghai, China. So she has traveled out to meet them where they are. She also uses the phrasing, my mother finally passed away. Yeah. <laughs> like, woo! Damn. We got some resentment. <laughs> so Charlotte walks around Shanghai listening to her music and sees a poster for Elizabeth Wells, the young cellist that took her place in that school years and years ago. Later, we see Charlotte walking down a very yellow hallway, again giving Suspiria. It reminded me of Susie getting off the plane. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of these things are intentional, like the bright, vibrant colors. She's dressed up and she enters a room where she's called over and embraced by Anton and Paloma. And as she hugs them, she grows emotional. And the view from which we're seeing her hug them reveals the underside of her arm, revealing scars on her wrists. And this is just a content warning. There are some themes of self-harm and sexual abuse in this movie. So that is something that discomforts you greatly. Maybe this is a movie for you to sit out. Just a bit of a warning up front. Absolutely. In this conversation with Charlotte, Anton, and Paloma, we come to understand that Anton and Paloma own the musical academy that Charlotte used to attend as a young girl. Anton is the owner. He comes from a family that has owned this conservatory for a couple generations now, and Paloma is his wife. Next, we get a scene. Charlotte is standing in what seems to be a lobby of a larger auditorium. Anton is addressing the crowd. They're about to hold auditions for some spots or one spot, I think, that's available currently at the conservatory. He introduces Lizzie Wells or Elizabeth Wells as his protege, wonderful cellist. She will be one of the judges. But he also introduces Charlotte, also one of his protégés from years ago. She will be the second judge. Yes, and the Academy is in Boston, but it's confirmed through some dialogue that Anton and Paloma go scouting in different areas of the world to find the finest cellists to bring back to them in Boston. And the Academy is called Back Off, which I thought was very interesting. Back Off? Back Off. Wow, I never even realized it sounds like. But it's also spelled <laughs> like Bach, like Bach Off. Yeah. And I think the way they say it is like... Back Off. Back Off. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. if we think about some <laughs> of the shit that goes on later, like the messaging of that. Ooh. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Next, Anton finally introduces Lizzie and Charlotte. And of course, we're already sensing some bubbling tension because, you know, we've seen shots already of Charlotte looking at that poster of Lizzie almost longingly or perhaps with a tinge of jealousy that Lizzie has been able to cultivate this career while Charlotte has had to stay at home and care for her mother. 
But upon their introduction, Charlotte starts fangirling over Lizzie. She admires her music. She's a wonderful cellist. And Lizzie returns that same energy. So it's kind of a cool scene. We see them fangirling over each other. Fangirling or flirting? Oh, well, yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> definitely, yes. They are gay. They're gay. And that becomes very, very clear in the next scene as they sit next to each other and watch the audition. So the performance begins and Lizzie starts leaning over and hunching into the crook of Charlotte's neck saying, they all know which one is going to win. Lizzie ends up gossiping about two of the parents of the other performers having an affair with each other. Lizzie calls it kind of hot and says that, I know I shouldn't spy, but it gets me wet. Okay, it's just... Damn. (laughs) It is just continuing this sexual tension that's existing between the two of them. So Charlotte, after the performance, goes to approach Lizzie outside and notices a small tattoo of a music note on Lizzie's back, which seems to stop her in her tracks. She seems disturbed by this. They get to talking and Lizzie reminisces that they did meet once before when Charlotte was leaving back off and Lizzie was getting there. So referencing that scene from earlier, that stair standoff, Lizzie's like, I hope you still play. And Charlotte's like, yeah, but I only play for myself now. I didn't like all the pressure. And Lizzie's like, I understand the pressure, but like, I don't think I could ever leave. It's my family. This work is what's expected of us. And that phrasing also seems to disturb Charlotte, maybe drawing up some flashbacks. But Lizzie says she's going to be taking a vacation. She's excited to have a little bit of a break from the work. And as they go back inside, they descend the stairs to find a man spitting up blood who is quickly taken away. And there is some pondering on whether he has a fever that has broken out in a different area of the country that they were actually just in. So this seems to worry Lizzie. But they don't have too much time to worry about it because Anton insists that Lizzie play a piece for the rest of the finalists. She agrees, but only if Charlotte plays second cello with her. They play this piece. It's amazing. There's some more tension. There's lots of close-ups on lips and fingers. Lots of pointed cinematography here. (laughs) And this montage of them playing this cello piece is placed over images of them dancing, images of them hooking up in a stairway, and then eventually having sex in a hotel room. Once they conclude their cello piece, the sound cuts and Charlotte's moans of ecstasy are the sound we hear over the muted applause from the audience, which I thought was kind of cool. I I thought that scene did such a good job of tying together all of these, like the cello, the music, the crowd, the sex, the attraction. Like it's such a loaded montage. I thought it was really successful. So then we get a pillow talk scene after the fact. Lizzie asks if Charlotte has ever been with a woman before, and Charlotte says that she has never been with anybody before. (laughs) Lizzie seems shocked by that, but she invites Charlotte to travel west with her the next day. And Lizzie, you know, there's more flirting going on. She seems very into Charlotte. She says she's never met anybody like Charlotte, that they're so different. She seems really attracted to those differences. But Charlotte says that they're more alike than they may seem. And then we get a shot of an identical music note tattoo on Charlotte's back. Yeah, I wrote big lesbian over a drink because this pillow talk is very much like, oh my God, I've never connected with anybody. And it's like, you met eight hours ago. Like, chill the fuck out. The passion. Also like enemies to friends to lover over the course of like what you said, eight hours. Like it's <laughs> it's jarring, but it's so, it's exhausting. Yes, but I love it. I love shit like that. <laughs> So we get our second chapter, Detour. 
So Lizzie wakes up hungover, seems like she's got a raging headache. So Charlotte pours her some ibuprofen from a pill bottle to give her chased with some more vodka from the mini bar in their hotel room. Lizzie said that this vacation that they're going on is going to be rough and tumble. They're taking like small buses to like unknown towns. She just kind of wants to go off the grid. And now Charlotte's going to be going along for the ride. So as they walk the streets to board the bus, Lizzie is looking sickly. She is looking very pale, tired. You can tell that she is not her normal, bubbly, charming self. Charlotte offers for them to stay back. But Lizzie's like, no, I need to take advantage of this time away from the academy. She just wants to get on the bus. They end up trying to stop for food on the way, but Lizzie can't stomach the food. So they decide to just get on the bus, but Lizzie says it feels like there's a fire in her head, chugs a bunch of water, says her mouth is really dry, asks for some more ibuprofen, and takes way too many of the pills that Charlotte offers, and keeps repeating that she'll be good now, she'll be good now, she'll be good now, which I think some of that language is interesting considering what we know that they've gone through. Wow, yes. So there's a lot of things that kind of point to the direction that they share in experience, which we'll find a little bit more about later. But there's a lot of hints that it was happening way before we knew about it. And that's so true. Like, because when I watch the scene and Lizzie just pushes herself to go on this, we know bumpy bus out into this rural area of the country when she's feeling as bad as she is. I was watching that totally shocked that she would push herself to do that. It's like, you don't just feel poorly, you feel awful and you're fully unwell and you're still going to push yourself to do this. But I think that speaks to, like you said, the way that she has had to live her life over this past decade, the expectations of her, and like you even said, that language. So it is kind of a genius scene in that you're right, it definitely lays that foundation which I never even thought about because I was too busy thinking about how I don't even think on a good day I would be going on that trip. I would not have left my bed. (laughs) No. I would be on the plane ride home. Yeah, I'd be like, sorry, guys, my my head hurts. My tummy hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta take care of myself, you know? (laughs) So the bus leaves the station and Lizzie falls asleep while Charlotte listens to music. There's a cute montage of her making faces to this little girl that's on the bus. She's trying to get herself comfortable. Lizzie wakes up and says that she needs to use the restroom, but they are on a school bus in the middle of nowhere. This is not a Greyhound. There is no porta potty (laughs) hidden somewhere in the back, not even a bucket to be found. Mm. They are on a school bus. Lizzie's like begging Charlotte to get her to get the bus driver to pull over. Charlotte does not speak the language. Charlotte gets loud and American being like, I need you to pull over. And thankfully, another bus rider is able to begin translating right as Lizzie begins to vomit and start crying that she's going to shit herself. This was giving like the shuttle bus at the place we went to college. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like one in 10 people at the school we went to has a story about like throwing up on the shuttle bus. Yeah, like after hours trying to get back down to South Campus and being like, I'm going to shit myself. I don't feel good. Mm -hmm. She's crying, saying she can't hold it. Finally, the bus driver stops. She doesn't quite make it off the bus before her bowels begin to betray her in that way. And she is literally screaming, crying, shitting, throwing up. on the roadside saying that her brain is on fire. She feels so sick. She doesn't know what's wrong with her. Charlotte is doing her best to reassure her, especially being that she met this woman 10 hours ago. (laughs) Say, like trying to clean her up. She's wiping her ass, like being like the best friend that she can be in this moment. And they end up getting back on the bus. 
shortly after Lizzie is back on the bus, she starts to feel really sick again. Charlotte wants to take her to a hospital. She starts trying to get people to help her, like get this bus driver to take them to a hospital. But the bus driver is really reluctant to do that. She checks her phone. There's no phone service. Lizzie starts crying again. Charlotte tries to distract her by having her name composers in alphabetical order. (laughs) But then Lizzie throws up again on the window and Charlotte, glancing at the puke, is very disturbed and exclaims, are those fucking bugs? And then we get a shot of the puke and there are little maggots crawling in the puke. So of course, Lizzie starts freaking out. She is afraid that she has caught a fever, that there are bugs inside of her. And she starts saying that she can feel them in her arms, in her body, in her head. She starts banging her head on the back bus window you know, the scene has just devolved into utter chaos. People are scared. The driver ends up then kicking them off the bus completely. And I felt so bad for the Good Samaritan. He was like, we will get help in town, but they should start walking in that direction. He promises that he'll try to get help. And I believe him. He seems, I feel so bad for this guy, like wants to do the right thing, but things are just so crazy right now. So the bus driver takes off with everybody else, leaving Charlotte and Lizzie just on this rural dirt road, hopefully walking in the right direction. They begin walking in the direction of the bus and Lizzie's continuing talk about how there's maggots inside of her, that there's something wrong with her. And she looks down at her forearm to see her skin moving looking like there's bugs crawling underneath her skin. And Charlotte reacts to this. She's like, oh my God, what's going on? She's freaking out. I wrote bad CGI bugs. It looks like there's some bugs that like bust out of her forearm and it looks like absolute bullshit, but like whatever. I thought it was scary. It was was (laughs) bad, but... Then Charlotte almost begins like egging her on a little bit, saying, what the fuck is inside you? You have to get them out. You have to stop it. You know what you have to do and produces a fucking meat cleaver from her back. Yeah, what the fuck? Not like your usual carry-on item. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is not a personal item. (laughs) This is an extra item. I just wrote reverse, reverse, like cha-cha slide reverse, reverse, (laughs) because we get our rewind sequence where we are taken right back to the hotel room that morning. We see Charlotte waking up in bed before Lizzie, staring resentfully at the tattoo on Lizzie's back and fixing her face right as Lizzie turns over. And then the scene plays out to reveal that she gave Lizzie her mother's medication that can induce hallucinations and the side effects are increased by alcohol usage. And what did she give Lizzie to take the medicine with? A bottle of vodka. Mm-hmm. She then stole the meat cleaver from the butcher that they tried to eat at prior to getting on the bus. They did have phone service on the bus and Charlotte said that they didn't. She faked seeing the bugs in the vomit. She planted that seed and Lizzie's mind ran with it. And also on the bus, she was looking up how to use a handmade tourniquet as she was playing peekaboo with the child in front of her. (laughs) And then we are jumped to three weeks later in Boston. We see a hall of portrait of other young female cellists. And this is establishing that this is back off. And then we get part three, home. We see that Paloma is showing the new student from the previous auditions around her new home. We see her mother is there. It's a tearful moment. Obviously, this mother is going to leave her daughter at this school in a foreign country, and it's an emotional time. 
We also see Anton, who is giving some history about the building, how it was converted from an old chapel a hundred years ago to become the conservatory. And he invites this new student into the room that is called the chapel. Apparently, it has the best acoustics in the house. And he has a student sing to show off the acoustics in the room. He asks her to sing an A sharp, and she does so. So the student has perfect pitch, which is, a, I think, like a pretty rare gift that people can do that. The mother gets into her taxi, leaves her daughter. She cries as she is driven away, and then her daughter is left behind at the school. That night, Anton is awoken when the front buzzer sounds. He tries to speak through the intercom, but there's no answer on the other side. So he goes outside and sees that it's Lizzie standing at the front gate. As Anton approaches, we can see that she is missing her hand. She's ushered inside. Anton didn't know where she was. Apparently, she's been missing for quite some time. And she tells the story about how she was found on the side of the road with the homemade tourniquet keeping her alive. Charlotte was already out of the country at that point, and Lizzie says that Charlotte obviously did this to her because she was jealous of what she had, and that's why she did what she did, aka manipulate her into cutting off her own hand. She also uses some victim-blamey language here, where she said, the police tried to help me, but I'm the one who took the pills. I'm the one who chopped my own arm off. Right. So again, painting some of those narratives of people blaming themselves for abuse that they've endured, Mm. or, or, well, I said this, well, I did this, like just trying to like deflect responsibility off the fact that Charlotte drugged her, but she does seem very angry with Charlotte, saying that she took everything from her. The next morning, Lizzie gets flashbacks to the incident and cries at the sight of her arm. She goes downstairs to see the young cellists playing and hearing the teachers encouraging them to play through the pain, which is something that she had said herself in Shanghai. So again, pointing to some of the treatment that these girls get. Later, Anton and Paloma sit Lizzie down and are gently trying to kick her out. Lizzie's like, I can teach. I can be of use somehow. I'll scrub the toilets. I don't care. This is the only place I know. Please don't shut me out. She even goes on to say, Anton, if you accept me, the music world will accept me. Don't you understand? You have that power. You have that reputation. Your word means so much. But if you shut me out, please, please don't be this person. Do not discard me. So again, painting that portrait that Anton as a pivotal man in the music sphere does have the power to perhaps advocate for Lizzie being like, yes, she lost her hand, but she's still a wonderful mind or she can do this. She can contribute to the industry in so many other ways. But Anton says, no, there's other girls in this house we need to train You had a gift, a rare and beautiful talent, but sadly the gift is gone. I'm so sorry, Elizabeth, which is not Lizzie. Mm -mm. So it is quite the emotional breakup on Lizzie's end. And as she sobs and retreats down the hallway, she punches Charlotte's photograph (laughs) and she is angry. Yes. And we can see by her facial expression that she seems to hatch some kind of plan that she will follow through with. And that's when we cut to Minneapolis and we see Charlotte again. She's making dinner at home when she hears some kind of noise coming from another part of the house. She does some investigating, but doesn't see anyone. And when she turns to re-enter the kitchen, Lizzie emerges from one of the rooms with a taser and starts beating Charlotte up. After that, we cut back to back off. We see Anton and Paloma arriving back to the conservatory after, I don't know, being at some outing and seeing Lizzie blocking the driveway with her car in front of the gate. 
Anton tells her again that she can't be there, but Lizzie says that she now has something that he wants. Quote, I have the bitch. (laughs) In the trunk of my fucking car. So she shows Anton that she has indeed kidnapped Charlotte. And yeah, she's chilling in her trunk. Charlotte wakes up disheveled and scared on Anton's couch. Anton's like, listen, Lizzie's not well, but neither are you. Were you really that jealous of her? And Charlotte's like, I was just trying to help her. I saw her picture in a magazine, saw the tattoo on her back, same as mine. I know what she had to do to get it. I knew she was brainwashed just like I was until my mom got sick and I had to go home. I sat in that room with my mother for a decade, slowly going crazy. I blamed myself for everything. I spent years in and out of the mental hospital until finally, with some help, I saw the light. So I reached out and came back into your lives to help save her from you. Yeah, so at this point, if you're like, what? That is, I think, what you're supposed to be feeling because this is not the resentful, jealous Charlotte that we have been framed to believe, right? This is somebody who is about to call Anton out on some bullshit that we as the audience might not have seen very clearly. Anton first stammers and tries to fake a response, but then stills and fixes his gaze and he looks evil. So yeah. we then get a flashback of Anton conducting Charlotte as a child in the chapel saying that she needs to feel the music inside of her. She's playing this complicated piece, and Anton puts his hand on her arm, indicating that she made a mistake. Charlotte's begging Anton to forgive her, but Anton guilts her and screams at her to stop crying, and that she knows what happens when she makes a mistake in this room. Two of the other teachers, Joffrey and Theus, walk into the room and stand and watch her. Anton says that her talent can only take her so far, but she needs to work harder. You got that tattoo because you were ready to play in this chapel and that you were the very best. But if you're not the very best, you're insulting all of us with your mistakes. You were prepared for their perfection and failed by failing. She cannot get close to God and she must pay the price. Yeah. And then after that, we get like this brief scene of a naked Anton advancing towards Charlotte. It is no mistake that, you know, a lot of this rhetoric, and especially this mention of you can't get close to God if you're not playing perfectly, is very reminiscent of a history of religious sexual abuse or like abusers under the guise of righteousness, harming children, harming people. And the fact that this is a converted church, I think all of that is very intentional. But yeah, I mean, this is the point in the movie where like all of that maybe pandemic shit is like out the window. Like it feels like this is such a turning point and we are in not a completely different movie, but like this is what the movie is now. All that shit before was like a diversion, like or We forgot we were in Shanghai on the bus. We are in a different setting now. (laughs) We are in a different setting. We cut back to the present and see that Anton has attacked Charlotte, tied her up, and he's attempting to take her away or like do something with her, bring her somewhere. But she tries to escape, gets kind of far, but he ends up knocking her out. She wakes up in a red dress, sitting upright on the stage of the chapel with her ankles shackled to the floor and a cello beside her. And in the room is Anton, Joffrey, Theus, and Lizzie sitting in the chairs. Anton says that she has to play for them again. She's very scared. She begs to stop this. She's like, Paloma, you're a woman. Like, come on, help me. And she just says, it's what's expected of us. Mm. Perhaps some major Stockholm syndrome going on here. Charlotte screams that they were children. What he's doing is wrong. And Anton says that what they went through made them more talented and even turns to Lizzie and asks, were you abused? And she says, to achieve the perfection, it was a gift. Oof. Lots of brainwashing going on. 
Lizzie prepares some drinks as Charlotte cries on stage and Anton lays out the rules. If she achieves the perfection, so she plays this piece and doesn't make a mistake, she can go. But if she makes a mistake, it won't be her who pays the price. And then Paloma brings in Zhang Li. The new student. Charlotte begs Anton to punish her instead and not the young girl, but he says no, and he urges her to play. So not having a choice, Charlotte begins to play her piece. There is a camera shake that denotes that she hit a sour note. She ended up making a mistake toward the end. It's cute because Zhang Li claps, but no one else does. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Ugh. And she's like so grateful to be there. She again thinks that she's being given this like exclusive preferential treatment because she's a young girl mm-hmm. and she doesn't see that the people around her are predators. But Anton ends up telling Paloma to take Zhang Li upstairs and says, did you really think I was going to make her pay for your mistake? She needs her years of training. She needs to be invited to perform for us as a vessel of God. She needs her tattoo. I'm not some random pervert, (laughs) just having a little fun. But again, like outlining that grooming is a process of time. Mm -hmm. And in order for them to break down these girls with enough time where they will accept all of this abuse, and I say accept not as in, you know, like it's a choice, but will see their abuse as love or see their abuse as them seeing potential in them as artists or as composers or as whatever it is. It takes time to do that. And because she's so new and fresh-faced, they need to give her this preferential treatment. They need to give her the front row to the concert so that she relies on them and is grateful to them. And when bad things start happening, she won't speak up against them. Is that love bombing? Like a form of it, maybe? I mean, I think so. I think it's some way of making that person feel so safe that when little things start going wrong, you always think back to those big things. But since obviously she's a child, she's just going to see any kindness, especially being that she's an immigrant coming from another country, having this type of opportunity. Isolated from her family. Yeah, exactly. Not near her family. Mm -hmm. Like she just doesn't want to mess it up. Yeah, which I think speaks to that conversation earlier about Anton going to rural places to weed out these kids. It's like making sure he finds students that do not have close physicality to their family because, of course, that makes it more risky for him to do what he's doing. So anyway, Zhang Li is sent out of the room, Paloma takes her away, and that leaves Theus and Joffrey and Lizzie. I think Anton, after he gives this speech, leaves as well. We get the sense that Joffrey and Theus are his henchmen. Like, Anton is definitely doing the raping, but these men are also doing the raping. He tells them, come get me when she stops biting. Yeah, what the fuck? Gross. So Lizzie then starts totally going into Charlotte. She's saying all these hurtful things to her. And she threatens to rape Charlotte with her arm, like the sight of her amputated hand. But right as things are about to get really graphic, Theus and Joffrey suddenly drop dead. Charlotte turns and smiles at Lizzie and they start making out. What <laughs> And then we get another rewind moment. Another reverse, reverse. We see the scene play out where after Lizzie tased and kicked the shit out of Charlotte, because <laughs> she was kicking the shit out of mm-hmm. her, Lizzie says, I should fucking kill you, but you were right what you said on the side of the road. Back to Shanghai. There's a flashback to Lizzie chopping her hand off in its aftermath and Charlotte saying, I had to save you. I had to get you out of his grasp. I knew you were in deep, as deep as I was, and I knew you weren't going to leave without a fight. I knew you were one of his special students, and that's why I had to save you. 
needed to give Anton a reason that he wouldn't need Lizzie again. And it would show Lizzie that he never loved her. He never loved Charlotte. That all he did was torture them and rape them as some kind of cover up of God. And that he won't be there for her, but Charlotte will be there for her. This is where they enact a plan that they need to stop him together. So cut back to the present. We see Anton sitting in his study, having himself a nice little drink, enjoying his evening. When Paloma slowly enters the room, she's acting strange. Anton tries to see what's going on. She doesn't answer. But suddenly, Lizzie and Charlotte enter the room behind Paloma. Lizzie lightly taps Paloma on the shoulder, sending her falling to the floor, revealing that she has been stabbed in the back. Charlotte and Lizzie attack Anton, but this scene is intercut with troubling flashbacks to their childhood, the abuse that they endured. And suddenly, Charlotte is pulled back out of these flashbacks into reality when Lizzie is yelling at her that Anton is going for a knife. So we see a mad scramble. Will Charlotte get to the knife before Anton? Anton grabs it, reaches up to stab Charlotte, but Charlotte... (laughs) Graphic warning, blocks the knife with her forearm... But of course, the knife still goes through and Anton drags down the length of her forearm, which her arm probably won't recover from an injury like that. Spoiler, it won't. And even though he stabs her, Lizzie is able to regain her footing and beat the shit out of Anton before he can kill Charlotte with, I don't know. A fire poker. A fire poker. Nice. Ooh, when a stranger calls. A little, yes. <laughs> I was like, what is my favorite fire poker scene? <laughs> and then we get another flashback to an image that we have seen of little Charlotte slow motion running through a meadow as if she's going to escape. And now that Anton has been compromised, we see this same image and it's giving us like a full circle feeling that Charlotte finally feels like she's avenged her little self and there's freedom in that avenging. And in the last scene, that childhood flashback fades back to the chapel where we see Anton with his limbs cut off, his eyes and mouth sewn shut, and him being kept alive on a drip while Lizzie and Charlotte played the same cello for him with each of their functional arms. Mm-hmm. So they are sitting on one chair together with Lizzie doing the chords, Charlotte on the bow, and they are staring intently at him. And that's the end of the movie, which I love the imagery of that. Also, like, putting Anton in a position that that people who have been traumatized through abuse must feel like they feel like they can't say anything. They feel like they can't see the truth of their situation. They feel unable to defend themselves. Like, they can't run away. They can't fight back. He has lost all of his limbs. He can't see. And now he can only hear music, mm-hmm. which is still, like, some kind of, like, don't play for him. Just throw him out. Isn't that, like, some kind of saying... What's that saying when, like, you have to come to terms with something? Face the music. Face the music. So he's literally facing music. Mm. Their music. Okay, so a piece of post-plot trivia from IMDb. So whether this was done intentionally or coincidentally, this film's plot and the timing of its release by Miramax suggests a rebuke of Harvey Weinstein's crimes. So Weinstein founded Miramax in 1979 with his brother, but was then fired for sexual abuse and rape allegations in 2017. I think there was like a trial and everything, and he was found guilty in the court of law. And there are parallels between him and Anton's character. And of course, the overt feminism in the plot seems to be an attempt to distance Miramax from Weinstein's actions. 
and then of course overlap with the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Piggybacking off of that into more on the connection to the Me Too era and the rape revenge genre. So some sources that I've read about The Perfection actually argue that the film is regressive for feminism. Vox writer Asia Romano argues in her article, Netflix is the perfection learned all the wrong lessons from Me Too, that this rape revenge film is told through the male gaze. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of these points about where the film lacks. And then I'm going to talk about other perspectives regarding the film and maybe areas it was more successful. So Romano writes, quote, The perfection has nothing new to say about women's experiences of sexual violence. In fact, it offers us a fetishized vision of female vengeance, one that ultimately seems far more like an extended male fantasy of domination than an authentic vision of female characters overcoming systemic rape culture. Rape revenge films are nearly always written by men and directed by men. These mostly male-driven productions position sexual violence against women as a story told by men and meant to be consumed by men. It's a structural trope of cinema that employs violence for an appropriated cause. I think of this as the Tarantino vengeance fantasy. You have a white male director slash writer, in this case Shepard, attempting to tell a hyper-fetishized tale of violent retribution on behalf of a marginalized group not his own. Stories like these set up a plot built around systemic violence, whether slavery, the Holocaust, or violent misogyny, to name a few. Then they posit that the remedy for that violence is a progression of deliberate, even gleeful acts of violence in return. So the rape-revenge film fetishizes both the sexual violence itself and the male guilt surrounding that violence, turning the latter into a vehicle to celebrate yet more violence. Meanwhile, the stories of rape-revenge films tend to use a bunch of other ridiculous sexist tropes because of who's usually telling them. So Romano goes on to touch on some of these tropes that she's referring to. The first she mentions is Charlotte and Lizzie's queerness. And she doesn't really explain why she's including that in like the problematic area. But my editorializing is thinking that A, the male gaze often fetishizes lesbians. And B, it may inadvertently perpetuate the antiquated and false notion that queerness is the result of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. So like, I think that's what she means, although she doesn't actually say that. Romano also mentioned Charlotte's unexplored mental illness and hospitalization as a tired narrative feature and the problematic trope that, quote, the idea that surviving sexual assault inherently makes you stronger. The implication is that sexual violence is some sort of rite of passage that a woman undergoes in order to become fully actualized and gain autonomy. Obviously, that's completely untrue, but this trope recurs frequently in media, in part because the people telling stories of women overcoming sexual assaults are often, well, men. Again, it's a story that doesn't belong to the people most often telling it. Yeah. I mean, I could see how this has male gaze on it just by putting two femmes and having them fuck with seemingly no context very quickly into the plot of the movie. Like that ascension from meeting to sexual tension to let's go on this vacation together is both true in queerness, (laughs) but is also like, let's try to get these two hot women to fuck each other as quickly as possible. Okay. I see that. I also don't think that femmes loving femmes should be punished for being attractive to men. So that's also like a different take to have on it. 
And it'd be one thing if we saw them repulsed by men in some degree. Like, I would see the reading that, oh, queerness is a result of abuse if we saw that Charlotte was, like, really hateful of Anton from the start and gravitated toward Paloma or something like that. But we don't necessarily see, like, misandry in the movie. Like, we don't see any, like, anything from them aside from their treatment of Anton as any evidence of that. Like, it is a fact that queer people go through sexual assault and that's not to say there's a correlation between their identity and experience but that also paints a narrative that queer people can't have trauma around that so I don't know that I love that reading very much but I also see the point and that's something that I noted is is Charlotte who we know to be older than Lizzie we know to be even if not in as much of a powerful position in comparison to Lizzie Lizzie described Charlotte as her idol at one point. Like, I looked up to you, you were five years older than me. There's an innate power dynamic that exists there. And Charlotte took it upon herself to take away Lizzie's musical prowess because she deemed that to be the only way to get her away from Anton. And is Lizzie's response to that and teaming up with Charlotte another form of trauma bonding? Like, is she just getting re-traumatized by Charlotte? Like, I thought that was like, there wasn't another way. I feel like there has to be some kind of metaphorical significance of both of these women losing their hands and then, of course, Anton losing all of his limbs at the end of the movie. But because this film reads so much more literally, like I think that Lizzie then forgiving Charlotte so readily does feed more into that idea that she's re-traumatized or a sense of discomfort from the audience when we see somebody literally make the choice for her to have her cut off her own hand as opposed to have a conversation with her because there isn't, like I, I just feel like there isn't an established metaphorical takeaway here as much as there is that literal reading. And so I think maybe what they meant to do is just kind of lost because people are like, why is this happening? And like you said, too, like that clear Charlotte is older. Lizzie has that dialogue about looking up to her. It does feel like she is thrown right back into a toxic situation. Right. But of course, there are people that also have positive things to say about the movie. And Romano herself also credits those other perspectives, including that of Anne Cohen, Refinery29 writer of the article titled, Netflix's The Perfection is Completely Batshit in a Good Way. (laughs) And she writes... Quote, when stripped of its maniacal trappings, the perfection is dealing in very real emotions. It's an acknowledgement of the symphony of pain inflicted by men on the women around them in the quest for perfection and the celebration of emancipation. And I thought that was a really powerful quote, A, because I love the phrase symphony of pain, especially because this movie focuses on a musical conservatory. And then also that keyword perfection, which we haven't really talked about yet, kind of like the title of this movie, The Perfection, versus maybe something like perfection, right? It's the perfection, like a certain one kind of perfection, which I think is a really interesting choice considering perfection is so, I mean, for something that seems objective, like it is so subjective. How do you ever classify something like that? And yet we are looking at a title that is the perfection. You know, it does feel like that kind of, and especially the Barbie movie, if you've seen it, I'm sorry, I guess I'm talking about the Barbie movie. You know, that movie deals with something very similar. America Ferreira's character has like an amazing monologue about the constant juxtaposition that women live inside of, like searching for perfection. 
And in this case, we see it in the form of musical perfection, like control over an instrument somehow equating acceptance into this male-dominated career or anything like that as far as being a musician, a composer, anything goes, you know, that can be seen as just like one example of living in a patriarchy in general as a woman and searching for some kind of perfection that no one even knows what that means. And Cohen's more optimistic view of the movie is also shared by Tori Peterson in her film review titled Netflix's The Perfection Broke Me. So she really seemed to take to this movie and she writes, quote, this is an erotic thriller. It's a love story too. It's a story about shared trauma, abuse, catharsis, and paths to breaking free. It's a story about zealotry, about saving yourself and saving others. It's a story about gaslighting. And yes, it's a story about revenge, but it is not a story about revenge for revenge's sake. And that is the movie's saving grace. Even as it runs you through a gamut of tropes you think you know, it shifts the perspective and uses them to tell a story that you don't see coming. On the topic of nudity, Preston writes, for one thing, the only female nudity in the film is during a consensual tryst between Charlotte and Lizzie. In the flashbacks, the abuse at the conservatory, it's Anton who is shown fully nude and menacing. And even then, the film never shows the details of the rapes or attacks to examine the very real repercussions of the brainwashing effect it had on Charlotte and Lizzie. So instead, the film lets us fill in the blanks. For a horror film, it shows admirable restraint in this particular area because it knows that the psychological damage is far more insidious than the physical pain of any such attack. But why use rape at all? Again, in this instance, I believe it does serve a greater narrative purpose. Rape isn't just a motivation or a dark shadow in Charlotte's backstory. It's a shared trauma, a systemic abuse of power that binds two women together. And unlike many rape revenge tales, the revenge portion isn't the point here. The emotional journey, the acceptance, the crippling PTSD, the decision to topple the entire system and save future victims from sharing their fate is the real crux of the story. And I kind of like that it's a revenge movie. Like, I get that people are tired of the idea of a rape revenge film, but I also think something like this could be cathartic to somebody who did undergo abuse and wants to feel what that would feel like to chop the limbs off of their abuser and sew their eyes and mouth shut. Like, it's externalizing rage, which is a part of trauma. And granted, when it's coming from the writing pen of a man, we see that like, oh, they're seeing this for entertainment or they're consuming this as this femme fatale, hot, queer thing, whatever. But at the same time, I do think that something like this could speak to survivors in that way. And even the fact that these two women are still able to play music in tandem is sharing that like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to get far, go together. And it wasn't until they teamed up with each other that they were able to take him down. But if everyone feels as though their experience is isolated or unique to them, then you're never going to find that collective power in that situation. So while I don't think it's perfect, and I and I still question some of the motivations behind Charlotte's re-traumatization of Lizzie, I don't think it's necessarily disrespectful because of that restraint that is shown in not showing sexual abuse scenes, like letting us fill in the blanks, like that made it so much more uncomfortable when it's just the suggestion. Even when there's that scene of Charlotte having a flashback in the chapel, 
she keeps looking to a light emanating out from under another room in the chapel. And you can assume just by the way she's looking at it, like, she doesn't want to go in that room. Like, that's all Mm -hmm. it needs to show us, you know? And that is amazing, too. Like, scenes like that with suggestions, like, how far audiences can take those suggestions as far as meaning. Like, people understanding what's going on or being able to literally empathize having their own experiences or sympathize based on how the movie is set up and what's going on. So I think that that is really powerful. And yes, that point about restraint, I thought was really powerful as well, because in those sexually aggressive moments, you know, we're not seeing the young girls or Charlotte as a woman, you know, on the other end of that, we're seeing Anton, like he is the aggressor. And that image of him naked is so troubling. And also like us taking on the point of view of Charlotte, of Charlotte, like, and thinking back to I forget what episode it was recently talking about like how the camera is oftentimes inherently misogynistic. Like in this case, we are put into that victim position. And like, we are not joining the aggressor in that we are taking on the point of view of the victim, which is really powerful. And I do think the image at the end of the movie of both of them playing the same cello is really powerful as well. And like what you said about like them working together or somehow harnessing whatever sense of acceptance or will to move on together, I think is really powerful. And also how this movie seems like it originally builds on another story of a jealous woman. It is not that at all. It seems like it might be that way. But then we get these two women who share many, many, many more deep emotions and connections other than just jealousy, which is something we see for women a lot in film. So I did, even though, yes, like you said. (laughs) you know, some questionable choices and motivations for characters. Like it is still refreshing, I think, to see a different set of emotions on screen and a different kind of relationship for women to have, you know, not just these competitive cellists, but, you know, they're all of these other things as well. I can't really say I, I guess I did enjoy it. And, you know, there were points where I was like, yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm not going to lie. Like, I liked the twists and turns. I did not know what was coming. I feel like there was a sense of closure in this film, which we don't always get in this genre, which I appreciated. I'll take it anywhere I can get it. (laughs) Um, So yeah, and I'm glad that we finally got to watch this movie with Allison Williams and like you say, complete the trifecta. (laughs) (laughs) So to keep up with us and what we're doing, follow us on Instagram if you haven't already at The Horrors Podcast. And if you want to get in touch with us, give us any recommendations, things like that, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.